When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. He wants Jeremy Corbyn to stand against him, doesn't he? It's for oh, me. I, oh, I couldn't possibly. Uh... What do you think? I mean, what, so you and me talking. <laughs> Between you and me, you mean, Chris. You, you and me, you and me. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at the Daily Telegraph, and welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. We've got a bumper episode for you today, listeners, to get you through the weekend. Later, I'll be talking to Leon founder and former government advisor Henry Dimbleby about whether there's such a thing as a nanny state when it comes to food. And Professor Tim Bale will discuss the Tory party post-Brexit and whether the party of reinvention has run out of options. But first, it's the week when Jeremy Corbyn was blocked from standing as a Labour candidate at the next general election and remarking two big anniversaries of the Iraq War in 2003 and a Good Friday Agreement in 1998. So there couldn't be a better time to catch up with my first guest who lived through those seismic events, Peter Mandelson, Lord Mandelson. We spoke to him ahead of a global council event at the Welcome Collection when he's due to interview the Shadow Health Secretary, Wes Streeting. I started by asking him the big question. Will Labour win the next general election? Well, put it this way, why on earth would anyone want to elect a fifth-term Tory government? Because by then there might be a degree of deliverable achievement by this government and there's You're risk... You're whistling in the dark, aren't there's you? There's risk, probably <laughs> asking me the question, there's risk with, with <laughs> Labour offers risk. Angela Rayner thinks Tories are scum, Tories read the Telegraph. Yeah, they, may, they may feel disrespected and uncertain by Angela Rayner and others if they're in government. She doesn't think Tories are scum. Well, she said so. Oh, she said so, and then she withdrew it, and quite right to. It was a stupid thing to say. Stupid you would never say that about the Tories. You, you, they, these are potential voters for your party when you, when you were um, a wheeler and dealer. And they still are. We have to win back a lot of people who have voted Conservative for the last 10 years. Yes. I mean, many people have just fallen into the habit of voting Conservative, both under Ed Miliband and then Jeremy Corbyn. But the Labour Party now is a more responsible and serious party. It's a new broom. Starmer has come in, worked a small miracle on the party, cleaning out the stables, cleared out the hard left, the headbangers and the anti-Semites. I think people see that the Labour Party has turned over uh, a new leaf, different different Labour Party, and in a way able to say, well, we've changed ourselves and now we're ready to change Britain. So if you look, if you look back at the various landslides, some of which you were in, you were in, in Westminster for others who times in Brussels, but are you going back towards those numbers? 179 landslide in, in 
97? I think it's just 167, 21. Just too early to say too the early. election isn't going to be until probably the middle or back end of next year. A great deal. Uh, a year away. At least a year away, and a lot can happen in a year. But here's the point. Is the Labour Party going in the right direction? Is it doing the right things? Uh, it's, is it observing the right priorities for the country? Is it realistic as well as credible in what it is saying it wants to do with the country, given the financial straitjacket uh, that we've, uh, we're going to inherit from the uh, Conservative governments? And I think that when people look at this sort of row of exhausted volcanoes or slumped in their seats around the cabinet table, I think these people have had their time. They've had their chance. Uh, and now it's time for something. When we last different. spoke in September, you you did you detected that moment coming, didn't you? You said it feels right. Like it's well, I told you what would happen. You with did. You forecast <laughs> the end of trust. You forecast the disastrous quasi. That was before. Tank. That was before our budget. It was. It was ten days before. And, all, and then yes, a mystic Mandelson crumb. That's why we're back, isn't it, Louisa? Because he knows what's going on. But exactly right. You, you saw what was coming, and you sensed that was the, the point at which the public turned against the Tory party, just post Johnson. And now it's kind of almost embedded in the polls, isn't it? It's like a cemented in that poll lead for Labour Party, 15 points ahead. But there's still a party, the Conservatives, which are just full of factions and divisions. I mean, they'll try and keep them down below the surface. But they exist in Labour, uh, don't they? But they're there. But they're not so obvious, maybe. Well, they're not in any sense in the way that we used to have uh, splits and divisions in the Labour Party. Um, I mean, that is one of the uh, you know, great achievements uh, of, of Keir Starmer. But it doesn't end there. I mean, sorting out the Labour Party is one thing. And he's done it, much to many people's uh, surprise. Now he's got to sort out what Labour is going to do for the country. Uh, and that's what you're going to see emerging over the coming years. I say he set out five very clear missions to do with economic growth, the energy transition, health opportunities offered by education, how communities can be restored and come together again. These are the right priorities. They're what the public wants. And I think that what uh, most people in the country now feel is that it's, it's time to turn the page. It's time to start a new chapter in our national story. And that's what Labour's prepared for. Are they doing enough, though? Do you worry about the language on taxation, on the language about wealth taxes? There's a, there's a, if following politics closely, there's a division on capital gains tax. Rachel Reeves signals something on that last week. And then, well, earlier this week, Andrew Rayner today says... It's not a wealth tax. It's a question of... Taxing uh, capital is it's, a wealth it's tax. It's a question of fairness between you know those who earn money through hard work and those who earn money chiefly using devices to do with private equity uh, and not paying the large sums of money they earn on that. And it's it's not fair. I've had many people, many people say to me, why should the private equity people not pay the same tax as I have to pay uh, on my income or my dividends? I mean, if if they're both both sorts of capitalists, one with dividends, the other with carry on their private equity. But but some people pay, what is it, 45% and the other's 25 Why is that fair? Yeah, I mean, dividends are one example of where, you, where there might be a big increase in taxation, which is a concern for... Maybe. Maybe. It may be. Uh, but I would be surprised if the Labour Party goes into the next election committed to personal tax rises and increases. But I have to say, though, we are in a financial yes. straitjacket. There's no question about that. I mean, when you had a Labour government, you know, during those 30 years... You bequeathed years, a generous uh, budget by... Um, 
well, Ken Clark. Uh, well, what we then did was to put it to good use because we generated growth of between 2 and 3% before we imported that dirty great financial crisis from the United States in, in 2008. Since 2010, when we left, we've had growth averaging not 2 to 3%, but 1 to 2%, 1 to 2%. Now the Bank of England is saying it's going to be 1% or less. We'll be lucky to have 1%. And the economic realities and the sort of harsh economic conditions that the Conservatives are going to be fighting the next election on, you know, are, are, are grim. Uh, I mean, we have the biggest living standard squeeze we've gone through in this country on record. Events, though, of uh, course. I mean, let's not, let's not, of, let's course, not, let's, of course we've had events. You know, there was a you, war on, COVID, course, Brexit, yes or no, but... Those well, three things. we've had three great shocks. Great shocks, yeah. Brexit was one shock. The pandemic was the second shock. Ukraine and the energy spike was the third. The most fundamental of those three, and the one that we can't reverse, is Brexit. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Brexit is the one that gave us very quickly a step change down in our trade with our biggest export market, private levels of in investment in our economy, in productivity, and, of course, our labour supply. Now, we can't reverse it. We're going to have Should to live Labour with reverse it. Should Labour reverse that? You can't. Is that, a settled, is that a settled will of the people as far as you're concerned? Of course. I mean, the Labour Party isn't going to go in and <laughs> to the government and say, oh, that was some, a great referendum some, we had. Some, wasn't, some it, wasn't it a joy? Uh, the whole country well, came together, enjoyed every minute. Let's have another <laughs> one of them. No, thank you. you no, I don't think the Labour Party is going to be doing that any time soon. Sense, you were intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich as long as they pay their taxes. Is that pay your, their taxes. Is that your position still? Uh, of course we believe in the Labour Party and aspiration and people taking risks and doing well. But if they do well financially and if they have a... An enormous great boost in their incomes, then they've got to pay their taxes, their fair way. But the party should be relaxed about that. And, about the, big, making and, money. The, and the biggest burden should fall on the broadest shoulders. That's what we believe. Yeah, And that, that should be the case. The party should be happy about making money, not against it. Of course. Otherwise, how is our economy going to grow if we don't create new businesses? And we only create new businesses through entrepreneurs and people taking risks. And if they take risks and they pay off, then they should have rewards for those risks. It doesn't mean to say that they just sort of hug everything close to their chest and never help the, help the rest of the country or help us pay for our public services. Of course not. They pay their taxes. But you want to incentivize people to take those risks. Otherwise, we'll not have the startups, the new businesses, the risks that people take when they grow those businesses. It's very, very important. There is no other way to grow an economy. No, you need, you need <laughs> a taxation. You mentioned the, uh, the Keir Starmer's ambitions. Do you think there needs to be a pledge card yet? No. No. We said that was too early. No, 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 no. Far too early. Look, you know, I've already said to some of my colleagues in the party, you're, 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 yes, you're running too, too you're hard. Too, running too hard, saying too much. Look at what's happened most recently. Since the beginning of the year, we've had two members of the Shadow Cabinet, John Ashworth, Welfare and Be Work and Pensions, who's really set out very, very strong, coherent uh, policies and measures to get people back into the labour market, into the workforce and working, working again. No sooner does he say it, up comes the budget, yep. Chancellor says, right, we'll have those policies and we'll announce that. They may not be as good or they may not be as generous or they may not be as quick, but they're filched. Secondly, Bridget Phillipson, Shadow Education Secretary, campaigns for the last uh, year, sets out very coherent policies uh, on uh, childcare. Up jumps the Chancellor at the budget, says, oh, yeah, we'll have, <laughs> we'll have childcare, thank you very much. That's politics. Um, we'll, 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 we'll promise you billions. 
promise you billions. It may not come for a, a few years, but that's what we're going to do. So just be careful, neighbour. Uh, as you announced new policies, that you're not him. you're not simply handing them on a plate to the Conservatives to filch before the next. Keir Starmer, though, must be the luckiest uh, Labour leader you can imagine. You've been around longer than I have, but I mean to have both Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson to evaporate in seven months and leave the the, the and pitch. Ger- and don't forget Jeremy Corbyn. And Jeremy Corbyn, but he's got. But I'll come on to him in a minute. But the point is, the two main op- opponents in Scotland and in England have just gone. I mean, how lucky is is, is Keir Starmer? Should be much further ahead than 15 points, shouldn't he? Well, good politicians create their own luck. Keir Starmer was an effective opponent of uh, Boris Johnson, but I mean, there was quite a lot of sort of self implosion yes, uh, yes, yes. Uh, with Boris. And although he has his fans, he has his constituency, most people, frankly, are just disgusted by what he did when he was Prime Minister, this sort of great shopping trolley of a Prime Minister uh, we've had. And now, of course. Which bits of bits you have? Which bits of the vaccine for our pot on Ukraine? Then he has a success. <laughs> who's even worse, great sort of box of fireworks who blows herself up and takes the British economy with her. So why is Starmer further ahead? I mean, given this picture you're painting. 20 points ahead. 15, 15, 15. 15, 17, 18, 14. He's ahead. Is he brave? Is he bold enough for you? <laughs> yes, he lacks he's... a bit of the Blair magic dust, some people say. No, I don't think so. Perhaps a little bit more Quicksilver could, uh, yeah. could be added to the mix. Yeah. But... No, he, what, what he's done, and he's, I must say, committed a lot of bandwidth to this over the last two years, and that is clearing up the party. And that needed to be done. You know, people were not going to come back and give the Labour Party another look until well, he cleared, cleared, yes. cleared the party I mean, he, up, he, and he's he, done that. He wants Jeremy Corbyn to stand against him, doesn't he? I mean, it's for oh, me. I, oh, I couldn't possibly... Uh, what do you think? I mean, what, <laughs> so you and me talking, no one's here but Louise who's recording it, but don't yeah. you think it's... Between his, you and me, you mean, Chris. You, you and me, you and me. It's his Clause 4 moment, isn't it? And you were there for Clause 4, the moment at which you demonstrated to the, to the moderate, to the right of the, of the country, that I am not that, I am this. And he wants to fight Corbyn, he wants, to, he wants Corbyn supporters to pile into Northington, chuck them out as well. He's an embodiment of Clause 4, isn't he? Well, uh, I just need to remind all of those... <laughs> I know you were there, by I just way. have to remind all of those supporters that if they organise and support a candidate other than the person who's standing for the Labour Party, they automatically and immediately lose their party membership. I know. Would that be a terrible thing? If it's a few thousand uh, momentum <laughs> supporters, you may welcome well, that. a few thousand fewer Corbyn supporters in mm. the Labour Party. Mm. But Corbyn is... He will fight North Islington, and that will be a good thing for, for Keir Starmer because he can say that's not what we are anymore. I have, don't really have a huge amount of interest what Jeremy Corbyn does, matters, as long as he does it outside the Labour Party. You've three times so far in as long 10 he, minutes. As long as he does it outside you. the Labour Party, I don't mind what he does. Are you advising Labour now? And no, are you, not really. You, no, you, I, we first met, you were trying to... You what were was keen I saying? To, you were quite keen. There wasn't a day you... You went by when you didn't miss being in being in government. You said at one point. There's also there's also not a day that passes when I don't do something to help the Labour Party get re-elected. But it doesn't mean to say that I'm advising the Labour Party. But anyone who wants to ring me up and have an earful of what I think, you know, yeah. they know my number. The forthcoming of Peter Mandelson as a government minister? <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, I'm 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 in the Lords? far far too busy. Yes, relaxing. <laughs> chillaxing even okay well, that's a no is it or was that a yes oh, is it, what, what, what did he say well I don't really think it's in your gift is it no <laughs> it's not sadly I can't give you a job in, in the Labour government um, is it a, is it a shadow cabinet is up to your standards which are quite high not quite low wattage no I, li- I like the shadow cabinet good, good I mean I I tell you something else I like yes last night I had dinner 
with 11, 12 Labour candidates, people freshly selected by their constituency parties. A couple of months ago, I did the same, another 12. Next month, another 12, another 12 after that, because that's what they want to do. I am so... I wouldn't say I was gobsmacked by them because I know how much work has gone into getting the right people in, in, in place. But my word, am I impressed by them. They are group for group, candidate for candidate, r- absolutely as good, if not better, than those we selected in the 1990s before right. the new Labour government. And as I looked around the room and talked to these uh, people, I could, see, I could see a minister in most of them right. on their way. What's their background? Are they uh, business All people, entrepreneurs? All professional people. The guy sitting beside me yesterday was somebody who'd worked in banking, was now a venture capitalist, investing in new startups, who's standing in South Wales. They sound quite attractive to a Telegraph <laughs> I mean, readership, maybe. I mean, are they, are they, well, are they, are they picked to, to win bus- over the, the they're right? They're business people. They're professional the people. They're people they work, who work in public services. I mean, they are a real cross-section of people. They're lively. They're outspoken. They're nice people and they're absolutely gagging for government. They want, they care about the country and they want to start putting things right. So behind the scenes, Starmer's team are building this kind of, is, is it New Labour Mark 2? New Labour 2.0? Yeah, I mean, Starmer's team have been criticised for spending so much time over the candidates, no. but they're absolutely right to Only do so. Only on Twitter, Peter, not, not by other people. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, let's park Twitter. Yes, yeah, so perhaps that's a good idea for all of us recently. It's getting worse and worse. But, but yes, but is, is it New Labour 2.0 when you, when you did so much to, you and Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and others, you know, did so much to turn the party into what it was in the early 80s and something which was electable? It, it, it's not dissimilar, but we do face bigger and different challenges now than we did in the 1990s. That, that's perfectly clear. I mean, I've talked, about, I've talked about the economic condition of the country. You know, it's going to be three or four years before people's real incomes and spending power recover from what we've got. Well, that's why Minister told me they don't, they don't want to win the election next time. They want you to win the election. Well, most of as I talk to, and I do talk to them from time to time in the House of Lords and elsewhere, they don't think they're going to win the next general election. I've yet to meet a Tory who, who, who will can say to me convincingly they're going to win. And that's the difference between now and 1992. People say, ah, oh, well, you know, these crafty Tories, they well, might they won, take you by surprise. You know, everyone wrote them off, but they came back and they won against Kinnock in 1992. Right? i tell you what was in 1992. You had Tories who believed in themselves, who believed in their government, who were hungry for power. You had an effective leader in uh, John Major who'd just come out with a rise in his stature from the first Gulf uh, war and you had Chris Patton, chairman of the Conservative Party, fi- presiding over quite a formidable fighting uh, machine. Well, lost his seat, of course, but yeah. You know, Conservative Party now, you've had five chairmen of the Conservative uh, Party, one after another, since 2019. Yeah, you it's know, different, isn't it? Three and a half years, it's very different. We haven't now. mentioned Scotland yet. Which is which is a, a big a big part of the victory in, in 1997. Um, do you think the Scottish Labour can mount this mount this uh, this revival? We had Anna Sawa on our podcast on Monday. He talked about he thinks the the polls in Scotland has gone too far down the social the social um, area, not into the economics. We're not talking about the the economy of Scotland enough. And is that could be the answer? I, I think what the Labour Party in Scotland shouldn't do is try to contest the SNP on their own ground. 
you know, oh, you know, we're more Scottish than the SNP. You know, we're more devolutionist. Well, they've ditched your red this, rose we're, for a we're thistle. That. Well, they've dropped your red that's rose. That's fine. I don't I have no problem over that. Now, the point I'm making is that trying to be sort of, you know, come overall separatist in Scotland, I don't think is the route back. I think the route back is to fight the SNP on the health service and social care, what's happening in transport, what's happening in the schools, yeah, uh, the economic prospects. It's delivery, delivery, delivery. That's where the SNP but have fallen down and that's where Labour can come back. The union's vote is split three ways, isn't it? And the separatist vote is two parties, the Greens and the SNP. And that's the, what you're so. The argument against that is that that is a, a, a concrete... But that's why the Labour Party in Scotland has to be so strong. But i tell you the main thing that will encourage most people, I think, in Scotland to vote Labour, and that is if they see Labour recovering in the rest of the United Kingdom. If they see us coming back in England, yeah. they'll say, well, there's a point in voting Labour in Scotland. And so it's that belief, it's that confidence that Labour is now a new fighting force that's going to sweep England will encourage many, many people to forsake the SNP and say, right, we're going to give Labour a chance because they're going to be in government and we want to be with the winning side. One issue that wasn't around when you were at your peak, I suppose, is this, these gender wars, the uh, culture wars. Mm-hmm. Do you think Labour should do a reset on this whole trans debate? And I think they've already started to do a it reset. It started last week, didn't it? With, oh, uh, it's Starman. already started. It's a good, Look, I think the Tories people, get a free pass on this. I, don't I know think why what, Well, the Tories started this, of course, with Theresa May. Uh, and other leading Conservatives uh, who suddenly came out on this self-ID for trans people. And I understand why they did, because nobody, you know, wants to sort of put people through hoops if they want to go into that sort of transition. Nobody wants them to feel sort of isolated or unsupported. And it was a nice thing to do. What people didn't think through was what the implications would be for women, uh, for women-only spaces, and for the safety that women quite rightly expect and demand. So that's why there's this reset, rethink going on, and I think you'll hear more about it. What what we'll hear more of on that? Yeah, I think you'll hear more of that. More of of kind of going back to where... No, no, I think think people will have to rethink, uh, you know, because... You know, the uh, gender recognition legislation that uh, we introduced, well, there was a case for modernising it and bringing it up to uh, date. But I don't think, as I've said, people thought through that, you know, as you do it, you might be infringing the rights of others in in society, uh, women themselves. Now, forgive me, I've been looking through what you said in the past about leaders of the Labour Party. You called the leadership of Miliband at one point terrible, and you call well, Lisa Corbyn, you, they really went rem- to hell on the handcart. You know, I really can't remember uh, 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 <laughs> saying that about no, uh, but Ed, but the truth is that he didn't have the appeal no. to the British public uh, that the party yes. needed in its leader, and that's why we but lost. So are you a fair-weather friend? Will you just turn on Starmer <laughs> when it gets tough for him? I'm what not a st- fair-weather friend. No, I'm, an, with him, I, won't you? I'm an honest guy who <laughs> yeah. tells it, calls it as it is. Boris Johnson talking about an honest guy. Does he have a future? <laughs> he has a future making money around the world, being, a, being the clown that he treated us to all those years. But he did some good things, didn't he? I mean, let's talk about Ukraine. Let's talk what, about sorry, the what? COVID vaccine. I'm just, I'm just, put, I'm just challenging you. Oh, your... he invented the vaccine. No, he, he put money He put money behind he's, he's it. He's fighting in no, Ukraine. No, as yeah, you know, Ukrainian governments don't create that. jobs, businesses do in the same yeah, way. Yeah, right. He created the circumstances. Well, i tell you this. I support what the British government are doing in Ukraine. The Labour Party has been full square behind them from day one and will continue to do so until Putin and his people are driven out of Ukraine. Totally on that. Boris Johnson, any chance of a comeback? 
would you welcome it even well, on would it be a party? bad thing if yeah. you just hung around you know yes he's doing he's doing the right thing now by being a being a kind of presence isn't he he just wants to upset the apple cart. He can't look at an, a, a, a basket of apples without yes. wanting to upset the cart that carries it. I know you're, you're Labour you know, Pierre. He's just a, he's, yes. he's just impossible. You said before you talked to Tories. He's just what, an attention seeker. If, if I was Rishi Sunak, what would you say to me as Rishi, Rishi Sunak? What, what advice would you give him? I would say keep doing what you're doing. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're doing what previous Conservative Prime Ministers have done, and we've had five of them, haven't we, over the last ten years? And what they do is they come in and say, oh, God, you know, sorry about all those things that went wrong under my predecessor. I'm going to sort of clear everything up, wipe the slate clean. Well, this is day zero. And all they're doing really is repackaging the same policies to wrap up and disguise what's gone wrong before. And then they face all the same old factions and divisions in the Conservative Party. They're all pulled down. Their policies fail. They're chucked out. And then the next Tory prime minister comes along. Has that not been the pattern of the last 10 years? Yeah. Well, what can you learn from history? You look back over the past. I'm ignoring, moving off that. You're asking me a question. I'm not like, well, I mean, that is a well, pattern of... Uh, it know, is a pattern, isn't it? I, I mean, mean there's, there's arguably, tell, me, tell me where I'm wrong. Well, there's arguably only been a Tory government in the past four years because the previous the previous uh, seven years were just uh, were coalition governments weren't they with the DUP or with the Lib Dems I mean and then even then DUP were a gr- fine choice weren't fine they choice. to have as your as your coalition a- allies well now, you wait for the I, SNP I to deal with Labour after the election that's coming I, your way I, mean. I think what, what what we're seeing is you know new Sunak packaging but same old Tories, and that's what the public think. You know, on the surface, people will say, well, I'll react to a new guy in charge or this event or that policy or this announcement. But below the surface in politics, Chris, is what's really, uh, really interesting. And it's time to trust Labour with that, is it? And what people are thinking and doing below the surface of politics, the the structural part of politics is to say, come on, are we any better off after 10 years? Are public services working better after uh, 10 years? Is the economic, is the economy growing any better after uh, 10 years? Do we really want another fifth term Conservative government? Or, that's the or risk all on, on your Labour That's the structural change. But I mean, if it was a risk, that would be a very good, you know, debating point. How to would you to me, reassure Chris. voters? But, but the risk was removed when Jeremy Corbyn was pushed out of the party. Yes, That's the truth. But when when you came in in ninety seven to ninety nine, you promised to go abide by Ken Clark's spending plans, didn't you? You brought in the Independent Bank of England. You did. You did what what should Labour do and to then, give that certainty? And, and then and then later on, we say we said, look, National Health Service needs you know yes. very considerable That's right. considerable investment, and therefore we're going to put to you that we should have a national insurance. Uh, charge increase and that will be dedicated to the National Health Service. And should Labour do that? Because that's been scrapped by the Tory party. Let's see whether history repeats itself on that. But look, I'm not making the tax and spend policies uh, of of, of Labour's front bench. All I'm confident of is that they're very serious and responsible people and they're not going to take risks with the economy. While we wind up, and thank you for your time before before your your conference uh, here at at the Welcome Collection, it's a year of anniversaries. Just briefly, Iraq, that was 20 years ago. Where do you stand on the Iraq war with the invasion? You, were, you weren't in government then, were you? I wasn't you in government. Think? I did vote in favour of it, as I was asked to do by the Prime Minister. That was the whip. Uh, I voted with the whip. When I look back on it, obviously I think about it a lot. I think it was a mistake. But unlike some of Mr Blair's critics, I think it was an honest 
mistake. Yeah. I don't think he took Britain into Iraq on a lie. I don't think he deceived people. I don't think he made it all up as he went along. And I don't think he fabricated the intelligence. I know he didn't do any of those things. But look, it didn't end well. Uh, it was a misconceived uh, invasion and then subsequently badly executed in the aftermath. So nobody can be proud of it. You can make all sorts of arguments for bringing down Saddam Hussein, you know, who would be sorry about seeing the back of him? Mm. Uh, certainly was not, planning certainly not the people he was, you know, he was bullying and killing and murdering and, and gassing in so many quantities. But afterwards, they didn't foresee what was going to happen. They didn't think it through. They didn't have a plan to reconstruct the country. That was a bad mistake. But it was, as I say, an honest mistake on Mr Blair's part. And that came to define his leadership, didn't it? I mean, and you know, maybe fairly, unfairly. Well, it defined his well, leadership, it did. It was but it's, it something that still hangs, it's something that still hangs over his leadership. Obviously, he'd be the first to acknowledge that. But thankfully, he had an enormous amount else as part of his legacy, including a strong economy, much stronger public services with a greater culture of delivery. You know, we have a National Health Service, which uh, we left in 2010, that was transformed mm. from the, the money had all gone there, Liam But here's the point, Chris. I'm just about to do an event here at the Welcome Collection, the Welcome Trust, about uh, innovation in healthcare. And I'm going to end up interviewing the Shadow Health Secretary, Wes uh, Streeting. We have lost that sort of drive for innovation in healthcare. Uh, we did it very well during the pandemic. We got the vaccine. We brought clinical trials down from nine months to nine weeks. We couldn't have been better at picking up new ideas, new technologies. That's we, the Tory government, you're saying now. Just no, we as a country. As a country. Sorry. Why is it different we then? Why as, is, why is we the as a country, not the Tories? But we've lost it now. Why? Because the government did not sustain yeah. and continue to support the changes in and innovation that were created during the pandemic. And as a result, the health service has, has, yeah. uh, has rolled backwards and we've got to pick up on that innovation that's billions because of pounds that's, more. Where, that's, where, that's where service delivery, new productivity is going to come from in the health service in the future. And I'm going to be asking, I'm going to be asking where's Streeting, yes. how he's going to achieve An that. increase of private provision. And when he was asked on this podcast back in January, he said he'd do 200,000 operations right yeah, now but that's not on the, the private. But that is not the same as privatising the National Health Service. You know, sometimes people say to me, so why do you want to privatise the National I said, well, we're not going to privatise the National Health Service, but where appropriate, where necessary, where we can speed up uh, uh, treatment and uh, bring down waiting lists, we'll use private care wherein it's not being used. And just very, very quickly, thank you for your time, Lord Mandelson. Next week is the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. You were around there at the highest level in government. Well, I implemented the... You implemented it. Sorry, forgive me, you absolutely were right there. I wasn't, you were right there. It has been a success, hasn't it? It's kept the peace broad, broadly in Northern Ireland. I it's mean, been a massive diplomatic, political success created above all by the people of Northern Ireland themselves and sustained by them with a, a great deal of help from you know, leaders in the UK, in the Republic of Ireland, in the United States, and they're going to be coming back in April to, to remember what we achieved and the risks we would be taking and what we would be facing if we let it was fall it a away. Balance agreement? If we let it fall away. And was it a balanced agreement? Did you feel it went too far towards Sinn Féin or the nationalist agenda? No, I did not. I think it was a balanced agreement. I think the way in which it has been implemented has reflected the interests of all the different parts of the Northern Ireland community. I don't think that the Brexit deal was fair 
uh, towards unionists, and that's why I support the renegotiation of the Northern Ireland and you support the framework in, in with the Windsor framework. framework. Yes, it was necessary to do it. It did not acknowledge uh, and pay sufficient respect to the unionist identity in Northern Ireland, and that's why the government, Prime Minister, has been right to renegotiate it and change it. And Labour won't touch that. It's now, it has to be settled now. It's settled. And just finally, of course, with the MI5 have increased the terror threat in Northern Ireland. That obviously means you never take anything for granted in Northern Ireland. No, there are dissidents on the Republican side, one or two oddballs, I might say, on the loyalist side too, but it's the dissident Republicans who pose the threat, the security services and the police service of Northern Ireland will be keeping a very, very close track on them. They're not going to let them through. They can do their damages. They can do their worst. But uh, our security will be very, very high as we come to celebrate the Good Friday Agreement and its implementation. You'll be over there in Belfast? I will be. I've been there recently. I will go again. Well, Lord Mandelson, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you. Very nice, Chris. Thanks. Lord Mandelson, Peter Mandelson there. Right, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up next, I'll be talking about nutrition and the nanny state with Henry Dimbleby. Right after this. Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. Now, some of you might be aware that I've been trying to keep trim in the last couple of years on what I call my Brexit diet when I took back control over what I eat. Do you see what I'm doing there? Anyway, someone who thinks that the government needs also to take back control of our food policy and tell us more about what we're eating and why it might be wrong is Henry Dimbleby, founder of the food chain Leon and a former food czar until he recently resigned. Henry Dimbleby, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you here. You're in the pub. I'm in the pub. No doubles, unfortunately. No doubles. But, uh, Shall I buy you a packet of pickle onion monster munch? I only like those on the train and in the car. They're my secret Because secret you reveal in your book that's your favourite, favourite food. It's a great book you've written here, Ravenous, about how we get ourselves back into shape. Um, you've just been the, the government's food czar and you've resigned. So why have you resigned? Well, I resigned because Ravenous is basically a popular reworking of the National Food Strategy, which is the work I did for government. How do you feed... Which, as you say, no one read. So you yeah. put it into a book and make them read it. <laughs> exactly. So, so if you're going to change a system, a complex system, and this is how do we feed 8 billion people yeah. without killing them with the food and destroying the environment, how do we do that? And you have to change the way that people understand the system. Mm. And fundamentally, the way that people think the food system works isn't the way it works. And so I wanted to write that in a populist, fun, engaging yeah. way. Because no one is going to, maybe a political correspondent, but most yeah. people aren't going to download a government well, report. I've got to say, it is, a, it is a great book. I'm just about a third of the way through it. I mean, I'm, 
I owe you an apology, probably, because I was on the Jeremy Vine show last week, um, and you came on, didn't you? And you founded the brilliant food chain, Leon, and I said, you've made millions off feeding people fat, fatty foods. Now you're saying that the government should step in. Aren't you benefiting from what you've made money from? And you got a bit, a bit cross down the zoo. I don't think call. I got cross. I think I reflected on it afterwards, and I thought actually I was playing a man though. And I, I know, feel I, sorry for that. But well, what's interesting is actually in these complicated systems, and if you look on Twitter and this thing, it is vegans against meat people. Yes, it's yes. paleos versus you know. So there's so much fighting, and when you have a complicated system, it is much easier to think it's your fault. You're a bad person. And so what in the book, what we try and say basically is that the reason we're unhealthy is because there is an almost unavoidable interaction between our ancient appetite. Our yes. appetite first evolved in prehistoric marine worms. That's, yes. Yes. That is how powerful and ancient it is. Yes. And the commercial incentives of companies and that's making us sick. And that there is a problem with the way that we look at nature and that we don't account for it in any of our systems. Yes. So I'm trying to say stop playing the man, man and think about how we change the fundamental because working it's an une- unequal struggle isn't it what you're saying yeah i quote the quote the economist w denning denning said a bad system will beat a good person every time and it is possible you know we have both mm. had struggles with yes, our weight yes. and in over our time and i think giving up entirely is a mistake so i like to think of it as a bit like you know if you're in a desert you have to recognize that it's quite hard to survive mm. You have to recognise life is tough. But that doesn't mean you don't try and learn desert craft. I think if people (laughs) realise, most people who are overweight think it is their fault Mm -hmm. and they're bad people and they eat more. And and so you have to recognise, particularly if you have a certain kind of gene. You know, my grandfather was morbidly obese. If you have a certain kind of gene, it's going to be tougher. But that doesn't mean you give up. And, And hopefully, as well as talking about how... Yes. In the book, how government can make that desert a slightly more fertile place. Yes. We talk about things that will help individuals. You, you, to, you, you to mentioned that you say in there very candid things, like one of your children said, Daddy, were you always this chubby when you were young? You know? yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, <laughs> and I've, 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 I've lost two stone since COVID by my Brexit diet, taking back control. We'll ignore Brexit in this conversation, but I think it's on me to do it. But in fact, the point is, you can do, only do so much as your position, and the government needs to do, needs to do more. Yeah, and, and, and actually the things that I think focusing on weight alone, the government needs to look at kind of things like advertising junk food to children. Yeah. There's just too much. And actually, funny enough, they're wrong about the politics of it. They think that's unpopular. It's not. People no. are fed up with the way the food system works. But personally, you know, the way that I now think about it is, first of all, you want to manage your appetite, not your calories. Your appetite is incredibly powerful. We give the example of the Chilean rugby players who ended yes. up in the Andes yes. and... Eating lungs and, and eating and the brains, brains and lungs and of lungs their family and friends to stay alive. You know, it's, it's hard to fight appetite, but you can make it easier by eating fibrous foods, foods cooked from scratch, more vegetables. And if you do that, you may or may not lose weight, mm. but you'll be healthier. Likewise with exercise. Exercise is a lousy way, it turns out, and we go into yes. the metabolism and how it fights against you trying to lose weight. But exercise will, you know, as you probably have found, make you happier. It's good for you in all sorts you of ways. Sleep and, and as you were re- reflecting before this, is making you look a bit more buff. A bit more yeah, buff. You, you were saying that people were coming up to you saying how, how oh, yes. physically... Um, yes, it all. You look well, don't they? There's, a, there's also the food industry is, is, is railed against this nanny statism, isn't it? And how, it finds friends in that argument on the right. Yes. Well, nanny state is, first of all, the phrase... You know, I know, sorry about the phrase. No, no, well, the but phrase, but it's interesting it's the phrase. It's a short circuit point to Well, it. it's interesting the phrase, because it originated in the early 60s, at a time in this country 
when most of the leaders of this country had been brought up by nannies. And they had, <laughs> and in, uh, well, they loved their nannies. Now it's they, just checking we smog. Yeah, no, we no, there's only one. Um, but so we quote Andrew Marr in there, the, the, the political commentator, who was known as Red Andy as a, as a young man. He was a Marxist. And he came to see the free market as this incredible thing. There's so much that the free market gives us. There's so many things that a planned economy, a state economy would not be able to give you. But, he says, the free market creates dirt. It creates externalities. And the dirt here is ill health. And, you know, Chris Whitty was, during lockdown, giving lectures online about the problems of food and how it's going to hit the NHS. The NHS is going to spend by 2035, as much treating type 2 diabetes as it spends on treating all cancers today. And we're going to become, in that phrase, we're going to become a a, a nation attached Mm. to the NHS. And simultaneously, Andy Haldane, the the governor of the the ex-economist Bank of England, says ill health is what's stopping growth. So any government in 10 years' time is going to be dealing with this. And so it's just about how do you stop the industry creating that You're trying to wake us all up. Yeah, 1% of us were obese in in the 50s and 28% of us are obese now. And it's, it's, you know, nanny state, not to call it what you want, the government has something to do there. In the same way that the government has, you know, needs to stop plastic turning up on our beaches or Mm. people littering or, you know, all of those forms of where commerce... Is failing is failing the, the to common do, good. to tidy up for the common good. To clear uh, is up. the sugar tax working already? We have that, don't we? On fizzy drinks, the, the, the meant to have reconstituted the drinks away from sugar was the George Osborne idea back yeah. in 2016. Is that good for us? Is it? Well, so is it, it I is have it just a, worse stuff in there. The jury's out on sweeteners, mm. but it looks probably as if it's better to drink sweeteners. But it does it suggest with the appetite that sweeteners might make you hungry because you think you've had sugar and you haven't, and yes. it confuses your body. What that's done is take a lot of sugar out of fizzy drinks. I got a letter from one of the big fizzy drinks companies while I was doing the food strategy saying that they supported the extension of the sugar tax to all sugary foods. And I was trying to kind of work out why that might be. And I think what they've worked out is that it's like squeezing a balloon, that the Mm. sugar has moved. So they have lost share of sugar to confectionery and ice cream. So my guess is that what we've seen is fizzy drinks have less sugar in them, but actually that's moved to other Because the money's in the sugar. So you describe, don't you, a supermarket as almost like a wrapper around it is the fresh food. But the big big iceberg of stuff is biscuits and processed foods. So 57% of the food we eat is processed. And 85% of that is deemed by the World Health Organization to be yeah. too uh, unhealthy to, to I read someone in interview do, did with a grocer about cucumbers. Yes, <laughs> I love it. So we're, we're told that the cucumbers is, the shortage is caused by bad weather, but you say it's, it's a pricing mechanism in supermarkets. Well, so there was bad weather caused a shortage across Europe. So what happened was you had seven weeks of warm weather all of the veg grew like crazy, it overgrew. Yeah. Uh, so they had to dig it in. We had a glut in, in early January. Then there was a cold snap and it didn't grow fast enough. So we had maybe 20%, 10, 20% lower. Yeah. Uh, but then if you went to France, a friend of mine s- sent me a picture of a newspaper story from France. It was all, uh, Zutalo, we have a two euro uh, <laughs> yeah. lettuce. They were all yeah. complaining because 
in Europe, they move the price. And so that affects the demand. In this country, we keep the price of an iceberg at 70p. But, but we run out of them. <laughs> but we're, we're, and we run out of them for a very specific reason in supermarkets, which is the wholesale price moves. So you get market people and restaurants going in and clearing the shelves of Tesco's yeah. for these lettuces, which is why you have to have the restrictions on them. Someone sent me a photograph from a, a market in Costa Brava, which was a whole bunch of cucumbers fully labelled yes. to go into a UK supermarket, which obviously the person thought, well, I'll just, I'll just tell this supermarket that we're sure. So what, it wasn't Brexit that causes George to shoot suit it, it was not. As Twitter accuses Brexit. No, it wasn't Brexit. Things. And funny enough, I, well, I, I was incredibly frustrated by the argument because you, know, you had people arguing, is it okay to tell people to eat turnips in February? What actually caused it was climate change. So that is going to happen more often. And so we need to change the way we think. It's an incredibly volatile market. You can't have fixed prices in a volatile market. Happen again. It, it It'll happen went. again. I mean, it's happened before. It happened way back, you know, talking about Brexit. When we opened Lyon in 2005, our first spring, there was a massive frost in Spain. And it wiped out all the broccoli. I remember we had a real problem. What did we do with the superfood salad? The price had gone up. So it's happened before, but it will happen more often. You mentioned Lyon. Now, you founded Lyon. I love Lyon. The food's fantastic. You do sell food there, which is bad for people. You're, you're a founder, but you may not be involved Well, we anymore. sold it in 2021. Do you, so do you wish, then, your, your fa- well, so think, now would buy into the ravenous agenda? So I think there, is, there are two things. First of all, part of the junk food cycle, and I talk about it in the book, it took us a long time to make money, and we felt ourselves going from wanting to do the best... Mm. Which, which is a high-end high yeah. salads and things, yeah. isn't To it, doing maybe? better versions of stuff that would sell. So to start with... We have baked fries, which are slightly better than fries, but there's still a lot of stuff on the menu that's good. But I felt us getting sucked into that junk food cycle. The other thing where we have been borne out is we did use whole foods, not much processed, and it does turn out that if you have high fibre, lots yeah. of veg, you will eat less. You said there in the book that the, the government food strategy is not a strategy but a handful of disparate ideas. Is that your, your strategy, were you saying that? No, yeah, that, that was, was their response. I was confused. That, that was, was their, their response, response. yes. So, Sorry, yes. so they responded piecemeal so for they actually put in marcus rashford campaign for a bunch of our yes, recommendations of and those got across the line then in the leveling up white paper michael go put some stuff in on schools and on trying to create better environments and communities then it's the jamie oliver agenda which has worked gradually yeah as you said gradually it? kind of grown and then we had the the government defra's response which was you know defra's actually doing the right things i think in the environment the farming thing but it was not it was just some yeah. some actions yeah. towards yeah. that and then we were about to have the stuff on health yeah. Sajid Javid was about to do a health disparities white paper and Boris Johnson resigned Sajid Javid yeah. resigned and then nothing's happened they've gone backwards on health now so yeah. when Boris Johnson almost died he was going to yeah. push forward the agenda restrict advertising and then they, they've is given it a matter of education I mean you know Lee Anderson is called 30p Lee now why that is is he took 50 pounds went to a Lidl with a chef and bought enough food to, to create, I think it was like 300 meals frozen into a deep freeze, costing 30p each. Do you think that idea, I mean, is, that, is, it, is it a social disparities issue that you have lots of easy ways to be, get very fat and, and often they're cheap, so people on lower incomes tend to get fatter? It's part of the answer. And we are actually, although it's weighted towards people who are poorer, it's across the board, you know, yeah. overweight and obesity. We go into that. So people will say, and actually we quote an economist in the book saying, hold on, I can get this bag of stuff from Aldi and this, and I can yes. create a meal. But then if you look at what it's actually like, 
to be living in that situation you might not have a freezer you might that's not right. have the money and to that's buy the problem you might not have the money to buy in bulk if you want to cook your kids something that is healthier if they don't eat it you can't afford to give them so there are all sorts mm. of other problems that make the theory actually a lot harder than than it looks. What's next for you, Henry, then? I mean, you've resigned from being an advisor. I resigned from being a a non-executive director at Uh, DEFRA. DEFRA, forgive me. So in this space, I'm going to do two things. So this is kind of the the campaigning charitable space. One is I've got this charity that I co-founded called Chefs and Schools, which goes into schools from the bottom up and helps them improve their food. And we've done uh, over 100 schools, and we want to do 2,000 in the next few years. And then the other thing is the biggest impact on the environment is meat. 85% of the land that we use to feed us is used to grow meat. Yeah. We need to use a bit less land. We need to eat less meat. And so, but, but government can't talk about that. That, that. that is an area where the citizens don't want government to tell them what to do. Yes. So I'm working with MNC Saatchi, oh, yes. who want to put all their pro bono work into creating a campaign. Try and make, in the same way that Elon Musk made electric cars, the cool cars, rather than the cars that hippies drove, mm-hmm. try and create a kind of positive way so that even steak lovers, barbecuers, can get on board eating a bit less meat without it being seen as a threat, make, make a threat to their identity. Vegetarian tre- cool for Exactly. Steak try and make not a threat to their identity. Yes, and, exactly. and, do, and do you buy into this whole the, the, uh, pretend bacon which uh, my, my daughter eats? I... So... There's a chapter in the book called Goujons of Hope, which yes. is all about, all about the uh, alternative protein. And I think because so much of our food is processed, it is a way of improving the environmental footprint yes. of that. For me, I prefer the taste of real meat. I'd Sounds rather have less often. But, my, the, but we, the Goujons that we talked about yes. were some impossible Goujons that were sent to me from the States. Yes. And my children, one of whom was vegetarian, one of whom was uh, kind of yes. like a hedge fund paleo eats meat and fruit and nothing else yeah. and the other who ate everything and they took this bag of goujons and they wolfed it down so they will be they part will, of the yes. solution i think well for this goujon of hope to you henry dimby thank you for joining us this week on chopper's politics podcast great to have you on thank you thank you henry dimby there and i'll put a link to his book in the show notes this episode Now, there's plenty of thinking in the Tory party right now behind the scenes about what is the point of the Conservative Party. They've been in government for so long, they're almost running out of ideas. Not least, as Lord Mandelson said there, stealing, apparently stealing ideas from the Labour front bench. It's prompted academics to look at what is the Tory party right now. And one of the most senior academics and most respected in this field is Professor Tim Bale. He's got a new book out called The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation. Tim Bale, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Thanks very much, Chris. You've got a really good book out called Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation. Do you think the Tories have forgotten how to govern? Well, I think they've certainly found it more difficult in the Brexit era. I mean, clearly, um, Theresa May had an awful lot of trouble managing the party, basically, because she had 80 to 100 MPs who either didn't like her deal or just wanted rid of her, especially after the 2017 general election, or both. Boris Johnson found things a little bit easier until the party ran into trouble. And I think with the Conservative Party, it's so poll and leadership dominated that if a leader isn't seen to be the guy or the woman who's going to lead them into the next election and do so successfully, then they are in trouble uh, from the off. Straight away. Yeah. The, the party is, strikes me, I think you may accept this, they're, they're like, like a shapeshifter, a snake that sheds its skin. 
when it gets old and moves on. So and it allows the party to create an idea of a new government when it's the same cast of people to move around the deck, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it does do that, but there's a limit to how much they can do that in the end. And, you know, next election, they're going to be in power for, what, 14 years? I mean, that is as long as most governments go. So, I mean, I think Rishi Sunak's doing a pretty good job. I mean, I think the problem for Rishi Sunak is that a lot of the people around him, per force, people he's got to put in the cabinet, are old faces. And in as much as voters recognise anybody in politics, apart from the <laughs> Prime Minister and the Chancellor, I, I think it's quite hard, given that, to project a completely new image. I mean, Labour is right now so lucky to have this implosion of two of these huge political figures in seven months, Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon. The beneficiary is going to be Labour, isn't it? Yes, but we have to remember that Labour does, you know, to coin a cliche, have a mountain to climb. You know, it needs a swing of well over 10%, I think, to, you know, form a majority government. The advantage Labour's got, of course, as you know, Chris, is that there's a whole bunch of parties at Westminster who will be prepared to work with a minority Labour government or indeed, a you know, a coalition Labour government. He said he won't do it with SNP, of course. Yeah. Keir Starmer at our party conference last year. Yeah, I mean, he says he won't uh, do a coalition with the SNP, but I mean, if he requires their the votes, exactly, yeah. And, Which is uh, the model the DUP used with, with the Tory yeah, party. Yeah, exactly. And the problem for the Conservatives is that there aren't really any parties other than perhaps the DUP who might be masochistic enough to do it. Um, not not now. Know, no. We're, uh, right now, no way. No, who would agree to, to govern with the Conservatives? So, in other words, the Conservatives only have to lose this election, if you like, for Labour to win it. What is the point of the Tory party? Is it to be in government? I think that is the essential point of the Conservative government. You're absolutely right. I mean, the red thread or the blue thread that runs right throughout Conservative history is essentially the will to power. And that's why they are quite adaptable ideologically. You know, they will do whatever it takes to maintain power. I think a really good example of this is, or the difference between Labour and the Conservatives is the 2010 election, after which Labour essentially said to itself, we're exhausted, we should just let them have another go. The Conservatives would never have done that. They would have done absolutely everything they could to hang on to government, and quite rightly so, because, you know, once you lose, once you're into opposition, it's quite unusual just to be there for four or five years. Well, they were, they were miserable in 97 to 2001. No one could care less about what William Hague said about anything. No, that, that's quite right. I mean, and that's quite instructive, I think, if we're thinking about what happens to the Conservative Party after 2024, if they lose. I wouldn't be at all surprised if the same pattern repeats itself. In other words, instead of thinking, well, why did we lose? Um, thinking about doing a lot of research as to why the electorate don't like them anymore, maybe moving to a more, if you like, mainstream or centre-right position, they're likely to kind of double down on the populist mm. approach, uh, elect someone like uh, Kemi Badenoch. In terms of the sort of culture war politics yes. that I think the Conservatives will be tempted in, into, that, you know, she's a... a, a but that's a dead candidate. end, isn't it, really? Well, I mean, that's what I, I'm I saying, yes. I where that goes after no. the initial Twitter rounds. No, no, exactly. And I, and I think that could be the problem for the Conservatives. They'll do what they did after 1997. They're kind of double down on that populist thing when actually they should be thinking about how to put themselves on side with the majority Can of the you name one thing which the Tory government has done, which is actually a Tory government... An achievement. Now, I asked this of, of um, a Tory strategist over lunch the other day. He said things like, well, raising the the income tax threshold, but that's actually a Lib Dem policy. Academy schools, that was actually a Labour policy. We got to universal credit, which is probably the biggest thing they've done, given that Brexit wasn't actually party policy.
What what single achievement has the Tory government done for its voters since 2010? Well, I mean, for some of its voters, I think austerity was a success because it it meant that the government didn't spend too much of their money. It was able to make you know tax cuts when it needed to in advance of an election. Has awarded married married couples. It hasn't really. It's kept the threshold stay where they are. They've pulled more people into higher taxation. The NHS is out of control. I mean, I just don't know. What, what What is the point of the Conservative Party? I say it again, I don't see what it is. Well, this comes back to this question of will to power and wanting to be in office, because the point of the Conservative Party is that, you know, we don't have a Labour government and a Labour government will be spending more. So they we'll define themselves more. against the opponents, but don't know what they're doing in the first place? Uh, well, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think ideologically, clearly, most Tories are low tax, low spend, small state um, Well, we say that. And we say, we say at the Telegraph, where is the vision thing from Rishi Sunak? And he's, he's doing competence. He's going through each problem, sorting them out as best you can northern ireland small boats and so it goes on but where's the dramatic 45p abolition moment which quasi Gautang did well interestingly i think that indicates that some people are kind of stuck in a groove in some ways from the 1980s you know <laughs> Me, they, you mean. yeah well not you necessarily but i mean you know they define conservatism as, as having to have a vision and i think most conservatives you know in the past perhaps before the 1980s w- would say actually our vision is just to be there and you know manage the ship of state you blame margaret thatcher for that because she had this so thatcherism became this Sunak says he lives in number 10 Down Street flat, which Thatcher had because of his admiration for her. He says that kind of thing. Mm. So he tries to channel Thatcher. But was is Thatcher the wrong model for conservatism? Well, no, not, not necessarily. I mean, I think the problem is that they hold her up as this icon and they have a misapprehension of what Thatcher was actually like. She was a very practical, very cautious sometimes politician she did get an awful lot done but i don't know necess- the second term not the first yeah term. but i don't know necessarily that it was always as informed by ideology as some people think actually so i think you know there's a very odd image of thatcher that the conservative party probably does need to move away from and probably needs to look at the real margaret thatcher who was much more pragmatic and paid for her tax cuts in advance and that kind of thing yeah you know she had an idea of what she wanted to do but that also developed over time i mean you know if you look at the 1979 manifesto and you look at what people were talking about at that time you know they weren't going to do this massive round of privatization or tax cuts certainly at the beginning it was just a, in some senses a sort of rolling program of success you know once they managed to do one thing they realized they could do another they could do another they could do another and she did bring about some you know very profound and you know to be honest very successful um, changes to british society that probably needed to be made whether they needed to be made in quite the same way we can have an argument about so what's next to the party? Are they out of ideas? I mean, they're feeling around in the dark, aren't they? We're looking at European Court of Human Rights or the Convention. Should, should, that, should that be a withdrawal? I mean, that was going to be reviewed by Theresa May and that never happened because, because of it. she ran out of time and, yeah. and energy. I mean, is that where it's going? That's one of the divid- small boats will become a big issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I fear in some senses that that is where it's going. I think that is a bit of a dead end. I just don't think there's enough electoral mileage in things like the European Court of Human Rights, just as I don't think there's a great deal of mileage in some of the culture war stuff. Obviously, immigration that's going to play quite well with some people but you know the, the obsession with say trans and all this what stuff is like, a woman is the, is the, is yeah. the gotcha question now yeah I mean I, I just don't see that you know having much traction with the electorate and to be honest I think the Conservative Party needs to remember and some of the culture warriors need to remember that actually all of that stuff isn't going to save them if the NHS is still in a mess and you've talked about that isn't going to save them if you know real wages aren't going up you know so it's the it, it is the basics that Rishi Sunak is trying to do that will give them some chance 
you know, uh, as long as Rishi Sunak... So you can present expected. competency yeah. against risk with Labour. That's yeah. all they've got left. Yeah, that, that is all they've got left. And you might say, well, that's sad, but, you know, that's where they are. And they, they need to um, remember that fact rather than thinking, you know, they need to develop some kind of vision thing in the next 18 months. That ain't going to happen. How on earth did you choose what to focus on in your book, given the amount of crazy things that have happened since Brexit? I mean, it's so kind of overwhelming, even for me, and I'm meant to, meant to cover it for The Telegraph. Yeah, I mean, that that's a good question. I mean, one of the things that I've found talking about the book is a lot of people do want to talk about Brexit and the consequences of Brexit, and everyone's forgotten about COVID. So actually, in the book, there is quite a lot about how the government handled, or you could say mishandled COVID. And one of the other things I do concentrate on is actually, you know, and this might interest you, the power of the conservative media, what I call the party in the media. And that's, you know... Telegraph, Yeah, Telegraph, Mail, Sun... Sun express even you know and i mean the 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 power that those media exert over the kind of conservative conversation that's absolutely right not necessarily all the time with the electorate actually but often within the conservative party itself and i would say you know, dare I say it, people like you or, you know, columnists. <laughs> Don't blame me, for goodness sake. <laughs> I'm only a podcaster. But would, would have, you know, would have far more influence perhaps than, you know, certainly ordinary members of the Conservative Party and indeed, you know, many backbench MPs. You know, you know as well as I do that ministers and prime ministers read what's written there and it becomes part of their conversation. It's, it's not a conspiracy. Isn't, it, isn't the country basically Conservative, right of centre, or is it left of centre? No, I mean, if you look at the polling, it has to be said that actually the kind of median voter if you want to use that fiction is slightly to the left of center on economics but to the right of center or more authoritarian if you like on some of those cultural issues particularly on immigration just final question you've done very well tim bale in all your 30 minutes not to mention the words boris johnson but to mention the words Boris Johnson, and people have a kind of, um, he does trigger a kind of derangement amongst months and lots of voters, doesn't he? Where does he sit? Is he the future of the party, do you think? And many might say he is, and he's not going to go away very, even if he is banned and has to fight a by-election in Middlesex. Well, I would say, and probably this is unwise, we've reached peak Boris, and I think, you know, he's it's, not It's a really seller's market. Yeah, I, I, I do think so. I, I don't think he has a, a chance of coming back. But, you know, as you know, Boris, never say never. Well, Tim Bale, an academic and author of Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation. Thank you for joining us this week for Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Thanks very much, Chris. Professor Tim Bale there. Well, that's all for this week's bumper edition of Chopper's Politics, listeners. I do hope you got to the end and you enjoyed it. Thanks to my guests this week, Lord Madelson, Peter Madelson, Henry Dimbleby and Professor Tim Bale. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and to Alex Puppet for the research support this week. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. Please do share your thoughts on what we discussed today by emailing me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk, or on Twitter, you can find us, we're at chopperspodcast. As ever, I encourage you to sign up to my daily Choppers Politics newsletter. It delivers all the latest from Westminster straight into email inbox every weekday. The link to sign up will be in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out on Fridays at 7pm online and in Saturday's newspaper. And as ever, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph if you can. I know you won't regret it. Until next time though, cheerio!